0: So this is what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to read uh, the first eight verses of chapter 3 in Titus, but we're only going to walk through three of these. And so let me read these for us. I'll give you a little bit of background, a little bit of reason why I decided to set it up this way, and then we'll we'll march through these three. Titus 3, starting in verse 1. Hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So I started looking at at one through eight, the original intent was to work our way through one through eight this morning and I started unpacking it on, on late Monday afternoon, early Tuesday, and just said, man, there's no way, there's just no way I can make it through these. You guys would be stroked out, falling asleep, or just, just so tense, saying, is he going to be able to finish it? And you know, it's one o'clock, it's two o'clock, we're still marching through this, and, and uh, I just didn't think that would be wise, and so we're going to do one through three this morning, but I wanted you to get a picture of what the whole thing looks like. We, we're we're going to stop with three, but recognize he continues on. There's a big dividing line there. I mean, he describes us being in one way of life. Do this on the basis of this. Verse three, this is how you were. Verse four and following, but this is how you are now. Like, this is how he has changed you. Understand, we're not going to look at that today. We're not going to look at four through eight today. But three doesn't make sense if you don't see what comes after it, okay? Okay. So we're going to cover it in summary form next week. We'll look much more in depth at what exactly is going on there. Uh, So we've been walking our way through through Titus. And you'll remember that when we got into chapter 2, he goes in and he sets up, and he says, this is how a church should operate. This is what multi-generational worship looks like as you're involved in one another's lives. And so he sets out this list of requirement, things to do. And then he talks about this is how you do them, verse 11. You're able to do these things because the grace of God has appeared. It's not that God says be perfect people and leads you to it. And you're like, man, this is just really hard. I can't be perfect. I can't even be a, a good, bad person. No, you're able to do these things because God's grace has come into you. It has invigorated you. It has made you alive. He has saved you, changed you, transformed you. You are a new creation. Do you get that? Do you get that? He doesn't call you to do something and say, uh, Glenn, go out and do this, go out and do this task, and, and, and Glenn comes up against the task, and he says, well, Matt, I can't bench 10,000 pounds. I'm like, "What, well, Glenn, that's not my problem. This is the task I've called you to. You see, to, to call somebody to just be moral or to do good things and to give them no equipping for it is, is just like asking Glenn to go out and bench press 10,000 pounds, no, friends. If Glenn could bench press 10,000 pounds, that'd be pretty awesome. It'd also be pretty terrifying to shake his hand. Um, But it'd be pretty awesome. Now he can't do that. Uh, Nobody in this church can do that. No person can be good. Nobody you walk up to on the street, if you give them a list of, of things to do, and say, look, this is what you have to do to be a good person. And you just say, no, go and do these things. Go and be a good person. They're not going to be able to do it. They're going to try really hard. But even Jesus said, he says, look, nobody is good but God. And so we find out you can't do these things. The church can't be healthy. We can't get along. We can't do the right things. Lest the spirit of God indwells us. The grace of God has appeared. It enables us to be decidedly different. We have to know that. We have to believe that. We have to know that. The grace of God has appeared. It's enabling us us to do things. And it is calling us to do even more difficult things. And that's what we find in this passage. Now, he's been operating inside the church, one through 10. This finds us dealing with people in the church who are difficult enough to deal with, right? If you haven't been in church very long, it's, it's difficult enough to deal with people who should know better. At least that's how we characterize the people that are opposed to us. We say, you know, they really should know better. And, and they go home to their spouse and they say, you know, he really should know better. It's, it's difficult, but in some sense we say it really shouldn't be as hard as it is. Lost people, non-believers, we expect it to be difficult. But we find oftentimes the greatest difficulties in our life among fellow Christians but look he gets into this and he says that it's not just how you act in the church it's also how you act out of the church verse 3 he says remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities now you've got a a Christian boss you've got a Christian mayor governor, whatever, whatever authority is over you, and you look at it and you say, like, yay is me. I mean, this is, this is amazing. I love this. I find no difficulty praying for this man, for this woman. I just, you know, I'm, I mow their grass on Saturdays. I don't even mow my own grass. I mow theirs because I love them so much. I'm so blessed that God set them in my life and is blessing me through this person and they're orchestrating all of this awesomeness for me. Praise God! And then you have friends that live in California and you're like, whoa, life's really terrible for you, like. I mean you live in the Silicon Valley, so that's your fault. But but life's life's bad for you, government's not working for you the way that you want it to, maybe you should move somewhere else, a state that that more identifies with the, the way you do things, a little more GOP friendly, right? It doesn't matter when we think about the situation Paul was writing to, uh, it's, it's not that Caesar was sitting there saying, I wonder how I can just bless the socks off those Christians. I mean, he's just sitting back and he's dreaming up and saying, oh man, I just, I really can't wait to make life great for all of these Christians. He wasn't wasn't preoccupied with that. He's preoccupied with how can I make life great for me? How can I expand our empire? How can I make these things better? And so in light of that, in the midst of that, Paul writes and says, you need to obey these guys. You need to be submissive. Now, this idea of submission is a mental disposition, right? It's setting our minds on the ideas of being submissive to them. This is difficult. This is difficult. And so we start to think, what does this look like? Especially as we see things passed and brought in that we don't like. Now, notice I said that we don't like, not that it is against Scripture, because that's different. We're going to talk about that in a second. But things that you're just not favorably inclined to, economic policies, things like this that you look at and you're just like, I, I, I'm just really not sure that's a smart way to do things. Mr. Obama, I, w- I would do things a decidedly different way. It begins to make you feel stressed and frustrated, and especially the more you're involved in the the political process, the more toll this takes on you, right? Now, I am marginally involved, and so I'm marginally affected by change, or, or feel that way anyway. But if you are much more involved, if you are integral in this process or aspire to hold public office, it hurts you that much more. It hurts you that much more. But the word is, set your mind on being submissive. This is so difficult. And we find so many ways around this, so many ways of twisting this and changing this and saying, well, yeah, but not really. Like, I mean, if we ever get a dictator, we should be submissive to them, but not to the people we elect. Do you realize how backwards that sounds? Like, we have a hand in choosing um, people for office. We have a hand in that. We don't always get the people we vote for. In fact, probably increasingly more and more, we get fewer of the people that we want, right? Why in the world would you think that you get to choose that it would be easier to be submissive to a dictator than it is somebody you had a hand in choosing? It's because in some sense, you probably feel disappointed that the person you want didn't get elected think back to the election, probably the vast majority of people listening to this and those of you in here, you voted for Mitt Romney or you certainly didn't want Obama to be elected. And so Obama gets elected and you start thinking and you start processing these things and you set in your mind hardness against him. And I'm not a fan, I don't have a bumper sticker, I don't, I don't have the thing that says O is for change, right? Or whatever it is. But this is what the text calls you to. It's not restricted on on who our leaders are. The idea is it doesn't matter. The call on you is to be submissive, to set your mind on being ready to submit to those God places. God is sovereign, right? It, It doesn't matter. He is sovereign over all of these things. The call on your life is the very difficult thing for a lot of you. Is to be submissive to them. Now I'm I'm beating this dead horse because for a lot of you you're sitting there and you're saying, "He is just crazy. I mean, he's just he's he's spouting crazy all over the place. Would he move off of this verse already? Let me say it one more time." Because I think some of you still aren't getting this. You're like, he, he says submissive, but really what he think he is saying is just last another couple of years. All right, like endure. Endure. Endure uh, rulers and authorities. No, no. Like, you have to endure. But read this with me. Be submissive. Be submissive. It's, it's, it's something cheerleaders never chant on the side of a football field. They chant be aggressive or something like that, but B, submissive, be submissive, B-E-submissive. I would spell it quickly, but I don't spell great slowly. So, But it's difficult. But look, some of you, maybe you read this and you say, this, well, this is just fantastic, but Matt, what do we do? What do we do when they start enacting laws and policies that, that we just can't follow because they're, they're contrary to the word of God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Friend, I'm so glad you asked. Flip over to Acts 5. You ever want to feel energized and and really amped up? Go read the book of Acts. Go read the first bit of the book of Acts. Find out what happens when the Holy Spirit moves in people's lives. And they just don't care what happens to them. They're filled with this evangelistic zeal. They go out. They are just doing amazing things for God because they set no boundaries on what it is to serve God. And it's like the mantra of their life. The, their beat of their heart says, Use me whatever way you will. And, and then whatever falls out, say la vie. That's life. We get into Acts 5, and around about verse 12, he says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Things were going crazy. Everything was going well. And, and, and they're out there and they're preaching and now Peter and the apostles start teaching in the, in the temple. They get arrested, angel comes, lets them out and they're back and they're, and they're teaching in the temple again and the chief priest hears about it and basically he says, Oive, these people have lost their mind, we've got to really do something about this. And so he brings them back in again. He brings them back in again. Verse 27, he says, And when he had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, Basically, "Fellows, I thought we had an understanding. I thought we had an understanding. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They found Peter and the apostles out and they were teaching in Jesus' name and so he brought them in, he arrested them, he abused them, he said, look, we're gonna let you free, don't do this again. Don't do this again. Do not teach in Jesus' name. We don't wanna hear it, we don't believe it, we think it's wrong, we forbid you to teach in Jesus' name, we forbid you to tell people about Jesus. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. You don't know what the Christian stance on when to follow the Bible and when to be submissive. It's when following men, following authorities, contradicts the call of God in a Christian's life. There's no room for acquiescing to that. There's no room to be submissive in that setting when being submissive, when following along, when doing things that will land you not in jail, go against the word of God. We must follow God rather than men. Look what he goes on to say. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we, were, we are witnesses to these things. And so is this Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Friends, if you are saved by Jesus, if he has come in and done a work of transformation in your heart, he has implanted the Holy Spirit inside you. And you've got one call, and that's to obey him. One call, and that's to obey him. So at the point our government begins to enact policies and plans that are contrary, that are contrary to what it is to be a Christian, you quit being submissive. You quit being submissive. But too many of us, we set this rubric and this line on, on policies we like, on policies we dislike, on, on whether we like the politician's haircut, and just goofy, goofy things. Like we set ourselves up against people because we're ideologically opposed to them. You just can't do that. You just can't do that. It's not because I grew up in Europe that all of a sudden I'm a leftist and this is, this is where this is coming from. That, that wasn't funny. right? You're absolutely right. I grew up in socialist Europe. But look what the scripture says. You tell me how you could read this any other way. You be submissive to them, but in the same hand, you understand where that line is, and you set in your mind where that line is. And you go to your other brothers and sisters in Christ, and you say, let's come together. Let's understand where this line is. And to be able to do that You have to be observant. You have to be reading the times. You have to be observing those things that are being enacted. Or closely associated with someone is. And tell them, look friend, I'm just ignorant. Can you tell me when things get bad? Because I just don't see them. Now look, let's keep going. He says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. And then you need to remind them also to be obedient. So it's not just setting your mind, but it's actually following through on the thing. So it's it's paying your taxes. Like, if you're not paying your taxes, you're stealing. You're stealing, just like when we went through Malachi. And Malachi's whole deal was, if you're not giving money to the church, then you're stealing from God. That's what he said. That's what the prophet said to them. If you're not paying your taxes, then you're stealing and you're dishonoring God. Jesus has a lot to say about where our taxes should go. He had them hold up a coin. He says, whose image is on there? They said, Caesar. Caesar. He says, Rend to Caesar those things that are Caesar's. You need to pay your taxes. Now, some of you are saying, Man, I haven't paid my taxes in 20 years. Friends, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> Go talk to a good attorney, right? Don't tell anybody that out loud. Good gracious, you people are trouble. You need to be obedient. But look at this next one. He says, You need to be ready for every good work. What a posture! What a posture. Paul in Second Timothy, when he was writing Timothy, he described what, what the word of God does and, and how it can be used. And one of the things he said is the word of God comes along and it prepares us for every good work. One of the ways as a Christian, you're prepared, you're made ready for doing good things is by reading the word and then looking around and saying, what can I do? How can I be involved? Where's a situation that, that I can lend my hand, my energies, my money, my time to? Too many of us, some of you anyway, you're, you're invested in the text, you know all of this good stuff, but you never look out. And so you're missing it. You're filled with all this amazing biblical wisdom. God's led you through tremendous difficulties in your life, but you're a navel gazer. You never look out to see how you can pour out your life and those things that you've learned onto those people around you. And you're, you're, you're being wasted in that regard. We need to be ready for every good work. We need to have this, this posture that, that we're in the, in the blocks, we're waiting for the pistol to be sounded so that we can take off and charge and do these things and do these things well. And God has equipped you, he has called you, he's given his grace and infused you, and he is ready to use you. And we're ready to see you be used. That's why when we were dreaming up and thinking of what do we want the characteristics at Ridgecrest to be, we said, man, we want people that are growing in their knowledge of God. Let's go with the word grow. We want people to be actively using their gifts. Let's let's stick with the idea of serve. Because you see this over and over again. And look at how Paul is driving this home to Titus. In, In 2, 1 through 10, they're doing good works inside, working alongside one another. In verse 14... He talked about, how in chapter two, and verse 14, he said, look, he is putting together this people, he has purified this people who are zealous for good works. And then here we read again that they are to be ready for good works. If you can't figure out a good work, come and ask somebody at the church. You're like, look, I hear that we're to be zealous for this thing, we're to be ready to do this thing. I look around, I don't see anything that needs to be done. I just, you know, this is the darndest thing, Matt. I'll walk around, I can't find anything that needs to be done. Uh, step one, you should probably go see an eye doctor. Um, I mean, we are happy, all, all, all kidding aside, we are so happy to help connect a person that would walk in and say, I want to serve. Show me where I can plug in. Show me where I can plug in. We are so happy to connect that person that says, I am ready for every good work. And this is what the word of God tells us, that every, Christ, every Christian should be this way. This is why it's so important to be plugged in and involved in a local church, because it is the primary place where we express our giftings and our service. And one of the ways we do this is through membership. It's through coming together and covenanting together to serve God here locally with one another. We need to be ready for every good work. Now, this is where it gets hard again. That, that was fun for a second, but let's make it hard again. Verse two, he says, speak evil of no one. Wow. It's like, it's like this passage had a window into my week, right? Or your week. Probably more your week than my week. I was sick most of the week. The only th- person I was speaking evil of was, was myself. Saying, why won't these hands work? This is a really hard one the idea that that we're to be reminded to speak evil of no one because I guarantee you that the vast majority of us here at this church and elsewhere, when people disagree with us, we're gonna speak evil of them. We're gonna malign them uh, internally, we're gonna think things about them, but we're gonna find other people and we're gonna hope they feel the same way. We're gonna go to them and say, man, You know, Charles, and and, and Charles always ends up kind of being my my punching bag here, sorry. You know, Charles, man, he is just a jerk. Don't you feel the same way? And I I heard Ben snickered, and so Ben says yes. And I'm just like, well, you tell me why you think he's a jerk, and then I'll share with you why I think. I'm like, wow, you've got a lot better reasons than I do passage tells us we we shouldn't do this. This shouldn't be what a church is like. You're going to be disappointed by people in church. It's going to happen. You're going to drop your kids off at the nursery. Uh, The nursery's going to to foul up, have a bad day. You're going to come into Sunday school, and somebody's going to have woken up on the wrong side of the bed, or maybe their spouse did, or maybe their car didn't start, and so they're just going to spew all over you. They're going to be ugly to you. This is life, And you just thought those things happened at Walmart. But but this is life. This stuff's going to happen. But how you respond will affect, it will have an effect on them. And even if it doesn't, the call on the Christian is to speak evil of who? Of those people you don't like? Of those rulers and authorities you can't stand? No. He says, quite simply, it is of no one. There are a couple places we can go for uh, for motivation on this. Let's go to 1 Peter 2.23. Do you ever want to have an example to look up to in Scripture? Decent chance you can look to Jesus in almost every one of those things. Peter's got this extended section here. He's talking about submission to authority, and it's amazing. Someday we'll walk through 1 Peter together. Let's start in verse 22. Speaking of Jesus, he said, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He didn't tell any untruths. He didn't sin. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus gives us this beautiful pattern, this beautiful example of not returning evil for evil. Had horrid injustice done to him laid himself down so it could be done to him. And he didn't return these things back. In fact, you'll remember that he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is what church should look like. This is what Christian people should look like. And then James always gives us a good indication. James chapter 3. You can look there briefly. James 3.9. James' basic argument is you don't talk bad about people. You don't speak ill of people. You don't speak evil against them for this reason. They are made in the image and the likeness of God, and so are you. James's argument for not speaking evil against other people is that God cares just as much for your spouse, for your boss, for whoever it is you're speaking evil to, as he does for you. So you don't speak evil against them. Because when you do so, you're speaking evil against God. It's, it, it, it's a difficult thing that we walk through and we wrangle through and say, oh, but I just, I need to be satisfied just saying, oh, blah, 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 blah. You know, just, just this. I spent a lot of time with my children over the last few days. Bryce asked me this morning, he said, dad, I've got a joke. I said, okay, let's hear it. He said, uh, uh, last Sunday, you made up words. I was like, that's not really a joke. That's kind of a starting line uh, of a joke. He said, well, do you, make up, do you make up things to say when you're preaching? I said, you know, I don't, I don't write everything down. He said, no, do you make up things? I said, Bryce, what do you mean by that? He said, you know, blah, 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 blah. I said, no, now I realize I've lied to him. I realize I've lied to him, and so it's this idea. <laughs> I should have let Justin preach today. <laughs> Do you see the importance there, of what James is getting at? Jesus gives us this pattern to follow. James comes in and says, "Look, you've got really no room, no right." You're sinning against God when you speak evil of one another, when we carry this gossip about one another to other people, when we seek to tear somebody down and, and, and get a group of people all centered around the idea of, man, let's come together and let's, let's just really put them in their place. Christians should be all about building one another up. There should be no place um, in our community, in our friendships for tearing people down. There should be no place in our meetings for, for tearing people down, for putting them in their place and assigning them value based upon our speech. There's just no place for that. You should speak evil of no one. Look, this is pretty self-explanatory. He says, uh, avoid quarreling. Now, he goes into this idea past that of, of don't look for fighting, of avoid these things, and, and be gentle. This is something that so many of us struggle with. I myself struggle with this. How do I be gentle in my words and my disposition towards those that I disagree with? I tend, tend to come across hard or, or uncaring in that regard. And, man, I care. I, I, in some sense, I want to set a line for what the Bible says and, 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 and the right thing and the right thing to do and the right thing to believe. And so in that, I really struggle with how do I express that my heart desires for this person to have just an amazing walk with Jesus, but I can't tolerate their behavior. How do I be gentle in that? And that's something that, that I personally really, really struggle with. Maybe you do too. And then we get to this summary line here in the last deal, and he says, show perfect courtesy towards all people. Show perfect courtesy to all people. This verse is destroying me. I'm reading through this. I did a study over, uh, fancy word, anthropology. It's basically just a study of man and how he relates to God. I took a group through it a couple of weeks ago. And kind of the heart of that is, is really just this idea that we're all made in the image of God. God, he, he made me, he made Frank, he made Claudette. He made each and every one of you. And so for me to go up and to be just, just ugly and hateful to Patrick or Kristen, there's just no place for that. There's no room for that. I can't be that person. I can't respond that way. I just can't which is easy for people that you see. It's easy for people that you're, you're family with, people that can, can, they can cost you something by not being kind to them, like your boss. You don't show perfect courtesy to your boss, you don't work there long, unless you're part of a very good union, and then, you know, whatever. But the passage has this, this total landscape of everybody there he's not just talking about rulers and authorities anymore he has expanded it so far beyond that he says the 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 person that you see on the corner you say this guy's just a bum he's just worthless i've seen him stand there and hold that sign i see him smoke that cigarette if he wasn't spending so much money on those cigarettes he'd be able to get to texarkana he'd be able to get down the road he'd be able to feed that family maybe he'd get off his his backside and get a job he'd be able to take care of his family That's, That's kind of where our minds go. That's where our sense of justice goes. We want to see the poor do something for themselves. We want them to quit knocking on our doors. We want them to quit coming to our church. We want them to quit stinking up our hallways. We want them to quit congesting traffic. We want them to quit putting that junk all over my windshield when I come to the curb. This is where this gets hard. This is where this gets tremendously difficult. It is easy, it is easy to be courteous to people when it's gonna cost you something not to be. It's like a child being obedient to their parent when their parent's in the room. But when it doesn't cost them anything, When nobody's watching, you're driving in your car by yourself. You think evil things about these people. You're not being courteous to them. You're not extending the grace of God that is evident in the gospel, that has been bestowed to you on anybody around you. You're hogging it selfishly, and you're violating this text. And This is where we are. This is the difficulty. What makes it even more difficult is it's not a one-and-done deal. And so say you leave church today and you see a guy on the corner, he's begging for money. And you say, well, I really feel bad about that sermon. I've got two umbrellas in the back of the car, I'm going to give him one. And then, and then Monday rolls around and you're like, I am so glad I got that out of the way. I can, I can just be a jerk to everybody now for the rest of the week. Until Sunday and then Matt's going to stand up there and be like, hey, how'd you guys do with that past Tuesday? And you're like, it. Texas, what is your problem? Why don't you rain more often? How about like 15 umbrellas? The passage, the way this verb is lent out, it's in the present. It gives us this idea that this is to be not just a one and done thing, but this is the characteristic of how we live, how we engage in society, how we see people. So when we see people that are impoverished and poor and just in, man, they're having a sorry day. We respond with love towards them. It's a difficult thing, Right? It's a difficult thing to find yourself doing because maybe you're not that type of person naturally. I don't care. God has supernaturally made you this person. You say, well, this just isn't isn't my personality. You're right. It's his working inside you. And he calls you. He demands you. He writes and says that you need to show perfect courtesy to everyone, not just the people you think are important, not just the people that can return favor to you, But he gives us an amazing, an amazing reason why. Verse three, for we ourselves were once. The grace of God appeared. It, it energizes you to do these things. You be gracious to all these people. You avoid avoid quarreling you speak evil of no one you be gentle you show perfect courtesy to everyone for we ourselves were once and friends what he starts to describe here is this this heinous list of who we were outside of Christ understand that understand that Paul is writing here and he's talking about our former state of existence what we were before God changed us and that's where we'll be next week when we pick up verse 4 But look, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish. This really paints the idea of of not receiving, of not understanding, of not observing those things around you that God is doing the way he is blessing you and availing yourselves of them. The fool is one who says in his heart, there is no God. This is typically how the Bible describes fool, right? It's the person that looks and says, God doesn't exist. God doesn't have any say over what I do. Everything I do, everything I said about in my life, I'm going to do as if there is no God. That's how the Bible defines fool. That's why we should never speak of one another as being a fool. That's the prime insult in Scripture. You tell somebody, don't be a fool. What you're telling somebody is don't act as if there is no God. Don't act as if there is no God. He says, look, we were once foolish. We followed everything we wanted to do. We acted as if there was no God. We were disobedient. Our life was was, mad, was, was described, was characterized as being these people that just did stuff. We were completely disobedient to God. We were led astray. Now look at what he says, we were led astray by. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We saw stuff that, that delighted our eyes, and we moved to take possession of it. And in the end, it took possession of us. Saw alcohol, we saw that it tasted good. We went over. We drank a little bit, we drank a little bit more. Next thing, you know, we are an, an alcoholic. You're not a person who enjoys drinking. You're a person who has to drink. It has possessed you. Any pleasure can do this. Any pleasure, any hobby can move from being a delight to something that owns you, something that has ownership over you. And the person who is outside of Christ They are pulled around by all these pleasures, by all of these delights, and they are slaves to them. They are enslaved by their pleasures, by their hobbies, by their passions. They're not a master over these things, but they are being mastered by them. And the great deception is they believe that they've got it all under control. And it could be pornography. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be internet. It could be work. These things drive this person's life. They're not in control, it's the thing that they're serving that is in control. Look what he says here in closing he says, passing away our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is what we were when we were lost. This is what we were. We were filled with hatred. We were filled desiring those things that other people had, wanting to make them our own. We didn't want to see good things happen to other people. We wanted to see them happen to us. Some of us might have rejoiced briefly seeing good things happen to other people, but we wanted more, something better to happen to us in our lives so that people around us would look at us and say, wow, look at how great their life is. Look at how fantastic things are going for them. This is who you were. Prior to salvation, the reason we are called to do these difficult things of being submissive, of being obedient, of being ready for every good work is because God has done these things for us. Recognize that when He came to you, when Jesus came into your heart, when He transformed you, you were a fool. You were busy chasing your tail in circles, completely ignorant to the existence of God. He was quickening your emotions. He was driving you. He was revealing himself to you, but you were a fool. You didn't love him or the things of him. It's not that you're a lovable, lovable puppy sitting in a window and God came in and said, oh man, I just can't wait to get that little dog and, and pick him up. You were terrible. You were a snake in the middle of molting. Like, I just tried thinking of the most heinous thing I could think of. I hate snakes. Uh, you're, you're, you're a cockroach in a window. Some of you like snakes. I had to switch to Cockroaches. But he came in and he reckoned you righteous. He made you lovely. He loved you in Christ. He took the shame, he took the guilt, he took the hate, he took the envy, and he died on a cross to free you from those things. He didn't come in and give you this example and say, buck up, be a man. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, he did these things for you. He gave you and made you alive by invigorating you with grace. And he sets us an example and he gives us a task and he calls and he says, go and be godly in your community because he has reckoned us as such. Do you see the difficult thing for the church? We see this amazing display every week, every time we leave this place and sometimes in it of godlessness. It is our landscape, godlessness. For some of us, your landscape, it looks like morality, but really, it's good godlessness. We're called to change that through the power of the gospel as it's changing you and you are involving yourself in the lives of those around you. That's why we display these things. That's why we live this way. So the transformative transformative power of Christ, which has changed us, which has made us alive, might be making others alive as well. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you.